the differences I think we took in approaching community choice or CCA. Um, and this kind of, I think, comes from our more conservative background and our Republican mayor was saying, let's talk to the utility company. Let's just see if they can get us there and not take this whole CCA move. And I, I thought you were going to take the approach of, I don't believe in more government and bigger government. And that's, that's the argument I heard a lot too. Um, so we tried to go down that path and we talked to the utility company and don't said, don't expect uh, Republicans to be intellectually consistent is right, what I found. Yeah. Is, uh, um, <laughs> you said Republicans, but it felt personal. I don't know. <laughs> wow. um, so the you guys are distracting. Now I don't know what else. <laughs> you were saying and the you approach. Of, yeah. The approach we took. Um, are cities the world's best hope for combating climate change? Many cities have committed to achieving the Paris Agreement goals, but have those targets translated to action on the ground? We look at San Diego's quest to achieve 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035 and what other cities can learn from this experience. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. We recorded this episode at the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy, or GPS, where we were joined by Cody Hooven, Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of San Diego. It was an informative discussion where we covered everything from how a Republican mayor ended up with a bold climate action plan, to the community choice aggregation model that San Diego is pursuing, to how cities are coping with the intersection of climate and equity issues. But before delving into cities, we touched on a few federal climate-related news items. So here's that conversation. We hope you enjoy. Awesome. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us in, in San Diego. Thank you to the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy for hosting us. And a special thanks to Sebastian Saria and Taylor Gruenwald for putting this event together. I'm Julia Piper. I'm the host of the Political Climate Podcast, and I'm joined here by Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat. He's the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy and a current partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. And beside him is Shane Skelton, our Republican, former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan, and current partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific. We're also excited to be joined today by Cody Hooven. She's the first chief sustainability officer for the city of San Diego, the eighth largest city in the United States, and a city that is enacting some bold climate and clean energy policies, which we will hear more about today. So thank you for being here, Cody. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So we are talking about cities because they're really on the front line of the fight against climate change. They're vulnerable to the impacts of storms, flooding, and drought, which really means that 4.2 billion people around the world who live in cities are vulnerable to these growing threats. Plus, people in cities have to cope with congestion, pollution, the heat island effect, waste and water issues. All of those are related to climate change. Also, another 2.5 billion people are expected to live in urban areas by 2050. So that's about 68% of the population by the year 2050. So that just means the number of people exposed to these threats is only going to go up. Cities also offer hope. Many around the world, such as San Diego, are stepping up to lead on climate action, even when national governments aren't. We're going to delve into all of this a lot more with input from Cody, but first, we're gonna cover some news. And one piece of news is that Brandon and Shane both had birthdays recently. So I got them a little something. What? Whoa. Some socks. Oh <laughs> my god. These are for you with Brandon's face Wait, on I them. The Brandon and one? these are for you. You're handsome. We're handsome. promoting oh, bipartisanship. Yeah, it's too bad I'm married because I would be, you know, <laughs> the women would be flocking to me incredible. with these socks. I think they'll be so great for you guys. We did not know this was coming, by the way. I know. This is interesting. This is yeah. really cool. It's, so first I got a Rihanna uh, blanket from our producer, Victoria, and now some Shane Skelton socks. Yeah. I mean, this has been the best birthday ever. Yeah, you guys right? are amazing. You better wear them. <laughs> Victoria gave me the hammer of Thor that also opens beer. It's like my two favorite things. So uh, pretty special. Now I got these. Oh, uh, I just wanted to, to share Thank that you, with Julia. everyone. You're welcome. That's I know you'll wear them often. I know. <laughs> You're big fans of one another. Okay. So seriously, on to the news. 
One news item we quickly wanted to cover before getting into cities is the fact that President Trump confirmed Secretary of Energy Rick Perry has submitted his resignation and will be stepping down from his post expected by the end of the year. That announcement came shortly after Perry dismissed reports that he'd be leaving. It also comes as Perry faces scrutiny for his role in the controversy surrounding Ukraine officials uh, being pushed by President Trump to investigate political rival Joe Biden. Trump has already named a replacement, Dan Bruyette. He's the, currently the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and he was voted in with a strong bipartisan uh, backing. But he does have a background of working for um, a, working as a lobbyist. He served on the Louisiana State Mineral and Energy Board. He's also worked for Ford and the financial services company USAA. And he supported a plan to bail out coal and nuclear plants here in the U.S. So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. What do you think it means that Perry is stepping away and Dan Briette will be in his place? Well, first of all, as you know, I worked for Secretary Chu, and he was the longest-serving Secretary of Energy in history. So his record is still intact uh, because Perry had to step down. Um, I don't think anyone lasts too long, though, in the Trump administration. <laughs> so, Well, I thought that the president was going to drain the swamp, but uh, it doesn't appear he's doing that with this pick. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think it's a really big deal. I think Rick Perry has been one of the bright spots in the administration insofar as we don't hear about him much, which is something that I think Republicans could really use right now is just someone who does their job. And you don't talk about a whole lot. But um, I think, um, you know, nothing's going to change there in the administration. Yeah, that's and right. It sort of is what it is. Though one, one thing I do take issue with, Brandon, is that people get upset when they say, oh, you're supposed to drain the swamp. We're putting all these lobbyists in government positions. And that's total garbage because you want people who understand an industry to be running that industry. And so for me, I always get a little bit weirded out. And people say, well, you were an energy lobbyist. How could you possibly serve as an, you know, an energy position in administration? And my question would be, who would you rather have? Who would you hire that doesn't have a background working in a particular industry that you want in charge of government policy? So that's not a Republican-Democrat thing. That whole talking point just drives me nuts because I want the people who understand the issues best making government policy. Cole lobbyists in charge of the EPA, Shane, come on. We both like, we both like Administrator Wheeler. Come on, Brandon. We both like him. You know it. These are the moments where I'm going to remind you of the socks. Be like, remember how much you guys like each other? And look at that face. How could you? How could you not? Okay, another change up in Washington we wanted to discuss is that Florida Republican Representative Francis Rooney announced he'll retire from Congress. This is relevant to us because Rooney's actually been one of the few outspoken Republicans on climate issues. He co-chaired the House Climate Change Solutions Caucus and has sponsored a number of carbon tax bills. So while the focus of the news has been on his statement saying he was open to impeachment of President Trump, announcing his retirement seems to be a real loss for the bipartisan climate action movement. Uh, you know, for what of it there, there was. So, Shane, I want to go to you. What do you think it means to lose one of the few Republicans who is willing to stand up for climate issues? Not a whole lot. I mean, I think I was a little bit more discouraged when Carlos Curbelo lost, not because I think Curbelo had any you know special value comparatively to Rooney, but because Rooney is choosing to leave and, and that's his right. And I'm hoping that he's done some of the background work. I know he has. Um, and, and of course, Rep. Fitz, Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania has also tried to encourage more Republicans to be involved. I think the big problem is that a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill are not taking this issue seriously. I don't think uh, Representative Rooney leaving is going to change that. The Curbelo situation, you know, contra for, uh, as a point of contrast, was so frustrating to me because he didn't resign. He was beat. And I wanted to see some environmental groups and some clean energy advocates stand up and say, hey, this needs to be a bipartisan effort and we've got to support this guy in his election. Um, Rooney choosing to leave is, is unfortunate, but I, I don't think it changes the discussion. And my hope is that his legacy will have been helping to get other Republicans, or at least a few, um, interested in the subject. What do you think that means for the climate caucus, Shane? I mean, it seems like whenever you have a Republican co-chair, they either get beat or they resign. It's like being on the cover of like the Madden video game. Like something, something happens to you, you take that position. Fantastic <laughs> reference, which, by the way, people might not even get in this room, but I, I love that. Um, and, I mean, I don't know, right? It, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to continue to say, you know, be calm, all is well, uh, when we keep losing our Republican climate leaders. I'm encouraged about what's going on in the Senate with Senator Braun and seeing you know, some Republicans from some coal-heavy states becoming more active in this discussion. I don't know what it means. Um, I, I, I don't know, because I'd love to see House Republicans become more involved. I don't think, again, Representative Rooney retiring changes that, but certainly we need more, and, and so not good, I guess, would be my answer to your question. A lot of House Republicans retiring. It's not good for you for 2020. It's not. But, you know, that's pretty typical. I read these stories every day and it's like, oh, my gosh, these Republicans are retiring. They're so scared of Trump and all these sorts of things. 
it's terrible being in the minority in the House of Representatives. And you see these waves of retirements every time around. So, um, yes, I think this is a very uh, volatile situation. And I think if you're a Republican right now, you might want to reconsider running for election. But at the same time, we see, um, you know, retirements constantly in the House minority. You're used to having a gavel. You're used to having power. You're used to getting to decide, you know, what bills pass. And when you're in the minority in the House, you're relegated to, you know, the, uh, totally ir- total irrelevance. It's not like the Senate where you have procedural tools where you can continue to participate. So I get it, but it's unfortunate. Speaking of the Senate, the next item I wanted to touch on is the vote to repeal the Trump administration's affordable clean energy rule. So last week, the Democrats forced a vote on this using uh, the CRA, the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress 60 legislative days to review executive branch actions. It's one of the few ways Democrats can push through more liberal climate policies or at least get a vote on them uh, right now, at least under Republican control, under Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. But the results of this vote were kind of confusing because not even all the Democrats voted to repeal this Trump rule. And so as a reminder, this is the this is the affordable clean energy rule, the rule that would replace Obama's clean power plan. So, Brandon, over to you. Why did Democrats use the CRA to put this vote on the Senate floor and why what were the results and why are they significant? I think the intent was to force Republicans to take a vote on climate change. Uh, so that then Democrats could use this in the 2020 election to say, you know, a vote against this CRA bill uh, is an anti-climate vote. Because in order for it to pass, the president would have to sign it, right? The president's not going to sign a piece of legislation that is against his own policy. So this is what they call a message vote. But I think the message is confusing, as you were saying, Julia, because, you know, by if it was to pass, it would reinstate the clean power plan, uh, which some people think is not sufficient. It's not sufficient anymore to deal with climate, uh, but it's better than nothing. So I think there's a lot of nuance there. Uh, I'm not sure it'll have much impact on the 2020 elections. I'm also curious to hear uh, from Cody about how you know people on the front lines and cities think about these votes in D.C. Are you, do you think it's grandstanding and silly, or do you pay attention to that stuff? What, what happens in a city when there's a vote like that? Well, obviously, I have my personal opinions, but I think from the work that we're doing in, at the local level and in cities, it's it's noise for us, at least at, in California, where we're fortunate enough to have a lot of regulatory uh, regulatory environment in place that allows us to do the work we want to do at the local level. All that stuff happening in Washington is just noise, and it's a little bit embarrassing. In this particular, you know, I thought through this after we talked about it the other day. This is actually the dumbest thing. Like Senator Schumer needs to replace his entire staff, and here's why. The way the Congressional Review Act works is that if you overrule a regulation, it doesn't just overrule that regulation. You can never again promulgate the same or a similar regulation. So what Senator Schumer just asked for is to prohibit EPA from regulating greenhouse gases indefinitely, which is the dumbest thing that I can possibly think of if you're if you're an elected Democrat. I get that it was a messaging vote, but most Americans, I think, don't really care about the Congressional Review Act, so I don't know who you were messaging to. And if Republicans had actually voted with you and Trump signed it, you would have effectively prohibited EPA from regulating greenhouse gases, which is something Republicans were trying to do a few years ago unsuccessfully. So really, really dumb. And I think this is one of those things where people get so caught up in the political echo chamber, they forget that there's an actual country being run and that they have some sort of obligation to understand what they're doing and what they're voting on. I think the intent, as Brandon said, was to get some of the Republicans on the record, you know, voting against this repeal. Uh, So they were going after some of their vulnerable ones, like Senator Susan Collins of Maine and uh, um, Colorado. Cory Gardner. And Cory Gardner in Colorado. Uh, Susan Collins actually uh, voted, was the only Republican to join Democrats in voting for the bill to repeal the Trump plan. Meanwhile, Democratic Senators Joe Manchin, Doug Jones, and Kristen Sinema uh, all broke rank and voted against it. So that's why it was But confusing. for different reasons. They were like, oh, we don't like the process of the Congressional right. Review Act. So it's not like they're anti-climate. But I think a lot of people are trying to read into that, meaning, okay, with these moderate Democrats, let's say the Democrats take the majority uh, in 2021. Does that mean that it's going to be harder to get, um, you know, a number of, of Democrats to vote, you know, in pro-climate legislation? And I think taking that vote as a barometer is probably a mistake. One, one other thing I could add to is thinking about, so we are in California, but in other states where they don't have any foundational regulation or legislation to help with clean energy and other things, I think it does hurt them then because they don't 
now they're pointing to confusion at the federal level. Nobody's really sure if climate's even happening. So, you know, let's just wait and see. And that's a that's a strategy in itself. So. Speaking of wait and see, the Canadian election is happening right now. I am oh, Julia, so excited. I'm very excited. You, should, uh, you guys should have seen the show notes. It was like three pages of Canadian where you had to like stop her. <laughs> We're like, uh, we don't think people are really going to care that much about the Canadian election. We Maybe know a little because bit. we don't care. <laughs> We're uh, doing it. <laughs> I'm not going to put this to a hand vote, but I'm assuming people care a little bit. Um, just humor me. Um, well, it does matter. Did you vote for Julia? Uh, I, I'm not going to disclose. Uh, but I did send in my fun. absentee val- ballot. Um, and I do have a race that might determine the whole federal election, so it's kind of exciting. But the, this is relevant because, honestly, climate is at the center of the Canadian election right now. Whether or not the carbon tax stays and, Pre- and Prime Minister Trudeau stays is up for, for grabs right now. I don't comment on people's looks. I'm not shallow like that. Um, but, yeah, I think it's one to watch, and I think we'll circle back on that in, in the coming days because uh, if there is a new prime minister, I think Canada will have a radically different uh, climate and energy policy. So more on that to come. Um, and I just wanted to note that we're not just about poutine and hockey. Exciting politics happens in Canada, too. The silence is not encouraging that I've convinced you. <laughs> I told you the show notes. We were right. Yeah, I think what you meant is politics occur in Canada, too. Not exciting politics. <laughs> Literally, no one's You had that one mayor time. that was really wild. Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Well, his brother now runs my home province. Um, but it will be interesting Doug to see, Doug like, the carbon tax, Doug, right? Like, does that influence this election? You know, in France, there was the, you know, they had the protests over the carbon tax, you know, the yeah. gas tax, and then carbon tax is a big policy in, in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. And it affects what happens with like oil pricing globally, what happens with the oil sand. So it's relevant beyond our borders, but we'll leave it there for now. I know y'all are falling asleep. Okay, let's put federal policies aside and dig into the subnational level, specifically cities. So cities house more than half of the world's population and responsible at the same time for over 70% of the world's energy-related carbon emissions. That means that cities could make or break efforts to tackle the climate crisis. Many cities are already stepping up. They're taking concrete actions to tackle climate change from expanding their renewable energy use to investing in sustainable infrastructure. And in the US, nearly 300 cities and counties of all political stripes have signed on to the We Are Still In Declaration, which is a promise to world leaders that Americans will not retreat from the Paris goals and will continue to reduce emissions and stem the causes of climate change. But it's not enough, at least not yet. Just 7% of cities who reported last year to the nonprofit CDP received a top ranking for their climate action to cut emissions. So even few, even among the few that are taking action, only a few of them are even having much of an impact. Meanwhile, cities are feeling the effects of climate change today. According to C40, a network of the world's megacities, 70% of cities report they are already dealing with the effects of climate change and nearly all are at risk. Cities are also the home to our financial centers, so this could be costing us a lot. We covered last episode the effects of the wildfires here in California, and with storms and flooding, all this could really cost cities a lot, and ultimately, the taxpayers. But there is hope. For centuries, cities have been the centers of commerce, culture, and innovation, and they're the birthplace of some of humankind's greatest ideas. We're going to go to you, Cody. So first, tell us what you think of the role of cities. Set the scene here. When you think of this dynamic of cities both being big emitters and potential leaders, uh, you know, how do you frame that in terms of your, your hope for what's to come? Yeah, so I think you set that stage really well. We are centers of the population and sort of progressivism and and just, you know, where a lot of action happens, I guess, at the local level. Um, so there's a lot that could happen here. We have different tools kind of in our toolbox. So we have land use authority. Um, we in California and a few other states, we have energy authority. Um, we have um, things that we can do at the local level. We also suffer the impacts more immediate, right? So rising sea levels, wildfires, droughts, um, all those things happen to us. And our elected officials and our mayor bumps into people at the grocery store who vote for or against them. So it really impacts those decision makers at a local level, which is different than when you remove it at the state or federal level, right? They don't really see their constituents that often. And they kind of are far removed from a lot of the decisions that they are aren't making. And so what about here in San Diego? What is the climate action plan that you guys have put in place? 
Well, so we adopted a climate action plan in 2015 that was pretty um, ambitious at the time. I would say it's still pretty ambitious. Um, it surpasses Paris climate goals and um, all these other, we are still in all, all the other signatories that came out after that. We signed on to a lot of them until I got tired of signing on to things and wanted to just get some work done. Um, but it addresses um, renewable energy. It sets a 100% renewable energy target for our city. Um, by 2035, which is 10 years in advance of what the state of California later adopted, which is 2045. Um, we also have really ambitious targets around transportation. And does that include credits when you're talking about 100%? Does it that does have to not. be sourced? It does not. So it's it's sourced from right. 100%. We didn't we didn't explicitly um, ban credits, but we talk about avoiding them. And as we, I'll talk about our plans that have developed since then, we're trying to avoid them as much as possible. And um, so transportation is another big one of mobility and how to how to change the way people move around. So California, we love to drive our cars on our open highways. Right. That's our, our thing. Um, and we're really trying to shift that. And that's really hard. Question um, how open they are. They're a little stop. Well, and go. That's true. They're not <laughs> 50 years ago. They're really open. Yeah. Um, and that's why they were built that way. And, and so getting people to change their behavior and also getting the infrastructure changed to allow that is is a big lift. And. Not only are we trying to get people to move around differently, but we're trying to electrify all transportation. So that's going to put more energy on the grid. Um, but yeah, so it's, we have a lot of work to do, and it's very ambitious. Um, but it's but it's you know I think we're we're making progress. P politically speaking, because um, the mayor is a Republican, and well, I wouldn't say San Diego is a bastion of conservatism. It is a more sort of conservative West Coast city. Did you, was there a lot of support for, for the work you all are doing with 100% clean energy and, and trying to address climate change? Is it something the constituency was like pretty well in line with or was it difficult for the mayor to, to sort of push forward on a bipartisan plan uh, with his Republican constituency? I'm just trying to get a sense of how different it is from the divide in Washington, right. say. I think, um, so San Diegans, we are more conservative, um, but we are still in California. Um, and the approach that we took, so when I got hired, the mayor said, I want to pass this plan. We had a draft written when he took office. That was this aggressive. This is Mayor Faulkner? Mayor Faulkner, um, who was a Republican, as you mentioned. Um, and he said, I, you know, I want to pass this plan as is. I don't want to dial back anything, but I need to get my base on board. I need you to get people to support this and make it bipartisan. Um, and that's what I did initially was I spent all of my time uh, making sure that it was written in a way and um, and the business community and essentially his base, right, his voters uh, could support it. And, and um, What so tactics did you use? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so a lot of, we made a lot of flexibility in the plan. So we actually made our plan legally binding. So we were like, we're, we were all in on this. <laughs> um, but we didn't make the targets legally binding, but the pathway to get there flexible. So we could give ourselves options. I think a lot of folks wanted to see a very Kinda explicit like a power plan. <laughs> kind of right um so one of them's legal yeah <laughs> the other was not right um and um we worked a lot with the business community i talked i spent a lot of time talking with them and we have a clean tech sector here that saw an opportunity and said this is actually going to be good for business it's going to be good for market transformation it's going to create jobs we're actually supportive of this and that was really helpful to have some people with i would call it courage to step out in the business community. It's easy to get the enviros to support something like this. So it was more of the business community and the influencers of the Republican Party here to say, this is something we can get behind too. And, and it took a lot of the kind of business tactics. Are there things that you learned in doing that here in San Diego that you think could be applied at the federal level to increase bipartisanship and, and move the agenda forward? You know, yes. And I think people are trying to do that. So especially in energy. I know we're going to try to focus more on energy. Energy is good for business. It's, it is a good business and it is good for business. It's funny that our uh, current president claims to be a businessman and he doesn't see that. Um, but I think everybody else in this space, Republican or Democrat is seeing the opportunity here to, to make money, to be, um, uh, you know, it's a new market opportunity and just people who are savvy to business are seeing that. Did the businesses that you worked with need convincing like when i look at the the federal infrastructure you think if you had the chamber and nam and some uh, national association of manufacturers some of these bigger trade groups pushing hard for some sort of clean energy target or some sort of climate solution i think that would be really helpful and what i have not been able to figure out is are they you know sort of resistant out of habit even though all of their members are publicly saying that they want this or are their members publicly saying that they want this and then hiding behind the trade groups? Did you find that you had to push pretty hard or were people ready to go there with you? That's a good question. I think a lot of businesses, so the clean tech sector was very willing to come out and say, we support this. Some other businesses 
kind of in private would say with things is a good opportunity, but in public, we're a little bit nervous to say that because of the relationships they had built and established. And I think you probably see that play out at the state and national level across the country. Um, so so it, it was a mix, but the, the businesses that identified themselves as the kind of clean, green space were comfortable coming out and, and the, the chambers and others were a little bit more hesitant for that reason. So you talked about new developments in your policy, and one of the big ones is how you're getting to 100%. And San Diego has, uh, I think just last month, the city council voted to go the route of community choice aggregation. So can you explain what that is and and why you're pursuing that model? Yeah, so um, funny too, I was thinking when we started this, so I started talking about um, our climate action plan and getting to 100% renewable, specifically around electricity is our immediate goal. and people would lecture me and pull me aside and be like, this is not possible. Like, I know energy and that's not possible. And now we're having these conversations. Or are you going to do that to me a little no, bit? No, okay, okay. I do that to him all the time. That's why I, I just... Um, <laughs> um, and now the conversation has shifted over time to say, uh, how are we going to get there? And let's debate over the pathway to get there. But n- they've dropped the it's not possible rhetoric. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm very, very biased against um, community, community choice. choice Wait, first, can you finish oh, that yeah. thought? I think we oh, got to say what it, what it is. What it is. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I veered off, too. I'm sorry. And um, so I've met a lot of people like you. <laughs> um, and um, so community choice is a community choice aggregation or energy or whatever you want to call it. Um, is it's a it's a legislation that's enabled in, I don't know, eight or nine different states in the country. And it allows at the local government level, it allows local governments to take over control of just the purchasing portion of the energy supply. So currently, at least here in, in our city, we have an investor-owned utility who buys power. San, um, uh, SDG&E. SDG&E, San Diego Gas and Electric. They buy power on our behalf, and then they also deliver that power through their transmission and distribution system. And then it's delivered to customers, residents, and businesses. So it's just changing that first piece of the supply chain and allowing local governments to come in and say, we're going to take over that that procurement piece and make some of those decisions about where our power comes from, the type of power we get, how renewable it might be, all that stuff, and still partner with the utility to deliver that power. So what I, and, and, I, and I genuinely want to know the answer because I, I get frustrated about it. I think we share the goal, right? We share the end game, which is that we want to deliver as much clean power as possible. The reason that I don't like community choice aggregators is I don't think that's the issue. I think we we know we have the technology readily available to produce zero carbon energy. We sort of know how that game works. And, you know, procurement is pretty simple. I, I don't, you know what I mean? From a, you're buying energy off the, off the system. But what I think the problem is, is the load curve and the issues that really need to be handled through our transmission distribution infrastructure. I mean, there are days, as you know, where California is paying Nevada utilities to take energy so we don't fry our grid. So I guess my view is running everything through the utilities helps you focus not just on procuring clean energy, but on building a system that's actually durable, um, that can utilize clean energy and make sure that we're, we're getting all the benefits out of the, the energy that we are producing in the state. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not pretending I know enough about it to say that I'm right, but that has always been my understanding and why I've sort of resisted uh, CCAs. And I'm curious what process you guys went through when you decided that was the way to go. Shane, did you just advocate for centralized planning? I, I always advocate for centralized planning. Are you like pull system. your Republican card? No, away? you know like, this. Like, <laughs> this is like against the conservative principles, right? I don't believe it's possible to solve a problem like climate change by having several very small entities. Um, and I'm not calling San Diego small entity. I just mean as a general rule, I think you need large, you know, large organizations with a lot of access to capital to make critical investments. I, I think it's both. I think you're going to still have that in the transmission and distribution world. You're going to have large entities that still organize and coordinate the grid. That here in California, the electricity, actually the energy system is crazy complicated. There's so many players in it. So I, I agree with your general concern that now we're just adding more players to that mix and that could be confusing. But the way this structure is set up, at least in California, is that um, we don't have control over the quality of power we buy. And the state hasn't, frankly, done a great job of really pushing us forward. We, we have some nice goals and we are a leader in the country. And, and even then, the state says we want to kind of get generally that direction. But we pay the highest energy rates in the in the state of California and San Diego and probably at least the continental U.S. Um, and we sat down. One of the differences I think we took in approaching community choice or CCA, um, and, and this kind of, I think, comes from our more conservative background and our Republican mayor was saying, let's talk to the utility company. Let's just see if they can get us there and not take this whole CCA 
move. And I, I thought you were going to take the approach of, I don't believe in more government and bigger government. And that's, that's the argument I heard a lot too. Um, and so we tried to go down that path and we talked to the utility company and don't said, expect uh, Republicans to be intellectually consistent is right. what I found yeah. because uh, um, <laughs> you said Republicans, but it felt personal. So the you guys are distracting. Now. I don't know what I was going <laughs> <laughs> You're saying and the, you approach, it, yeah. the approach we took <laughs> um, was uh, talking to the utility and saying, you know, instead of doing that path, can you just get get there for us? We want to get to 100 percent renewable electricity by 2035. What can you do for us? And we we couldn't get there with them. We tried. We tried to take a different pathway and it was very uh, vague. We might get there. Um, it's going to cost more. We're not sure how much. And we'll figure it out maybe which is interesting because it's kind of an existential threat to the utility or at least they were kind of talking about it in those terms because i think in san diego specifically the city represents more than 40 percent of the load that sdg&e currently serves or was serving so what does the future of sdg&e look like if they are no longer buying power for that population so they don't make money off the procurement of power. So they're going to be fine. I think they they might lay off a few executives at some point, and maybe our community choice program will hire them. Um, and um, you know their their T and D system and all the linemen and all the people that work on that system are going to remain. And um, so I, I think as a company they're going to be fine. And I think their parent company is you know they're international. They're they're. They're making big moves. Empress. This is, yeah, this is, yeah, they're also a gas company. Right. This is um, not a huge deal. And it's the, you know, it's, we're all, we are all, them and us are thinking about what our customers want and how the market's changing. And if you want to fight that, then you're going to be a dinosaur. But it's interesting because utilities are not really allowed to say anything disparaging about CCAs. That is a law here in California stemming right. back from previous pushbacks and confrontations over this. You can't pay to lobby against it. You can't pay to lobby against it. But there's certain things that I know in interviewing them that they could, just couldn't say. They could form a separate lobbying group and then lobby against it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they do view then they, it. Then they would get hired in the Trump administration mm-hmm. as like a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help himself. Can not um, help himself. My point, though, is that even though technically this doesn't affect their business, I think in a world where touch points with customers um, is is part of the brand and identity, it does feel like a loss. So the politics here are just interesting, not even talking Democrat, Republican, but just local politics. Well, yeah, and do they lose visibility? Because one of the reasons I love the utility model is that, you know, your procurement is aligned with your other investments and visibility, I would argue, is the most critical aspect to tackling decarbonization. If you don't know exactly what and how your load looks like, you don't really know what your needs are and where you want to go behind the meter with storage, where you want to have microgrids, all these sorts of things. The way that it's set up now, do they lose any visibility into the long-term procurement? Is you know what, what does your procurement look like? Are you three years in advance? Are you a year in advance? Are you a month in advance? There's requirements to have a lot of uh, 60% of contracts need to be 10 years or longer. So, And the other benefit of a community choice program is it's now run by, the way we structured it was another uh, difference. We're doing a joint powers authority because we wanted it to be outside of the local government. But it still has all the transparency requirements and the kind of community engagement that local governments do, which is very different. I mean, I don't know the last time you went to an investor-owned utility shareholder meeting maybe never because you don't get to engage there's no visibility right now on what their system looks like it's it's a um between them and the their regulators and a little bit of engagement if you're you know have a full-time job she doing prefers that. to hang out at the country club yeah <laughs> not, not investor owned utilities stakeholder right. meetings and um, so i think there's going to be there's going to have to be a partnership there and and really i think the interest that you have is around the transmission and distribution system and there should be more visibility there i think and a lot of innovation and opportunities and we're not taking away from that by p- buying different types of electrons to pass through that system uh, so cody will there be competition as san diego moves to the cca model or is it just the government runs everything from here on out yeah, another uh, benefit of a community choice program is it does inject competition into the serving of the customers for energy. So um, if customers, they're, they're opted into the community choice program, if it's formed in their area, and if they don't like it or they don't want to be part of it for whatever reason, they can opt out and remain with the utility, and that utility will also buy their power on their behalf. So now we're essentially competing for customers, which generally drives up customer service. I think this trend will be interesting. The regulators here in California said something like 80% or more of Californians could be covered by a community choice aggregation program by even 2021, is it? 2025? Within the next few years, which means this is happening really, really fast and will fundamentally change the way utilities operate in the state. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. Of course, it's happening at the same time as wildfires are wreaking havoc on the utility business model. So this isn't happening in an echo chamber. So 
I'm curious how Mayor Faulkner got the confidence to pursue this new model. He's obviously not the only one. We talked about a lot of cities going this route of community choice aggregation, but it's a hard thing to do, no matter who you are, to try something different and new. How did he get the confidence and you know the in- interest in doing that? Yeah, I think it was a couple of things we talked about already, which is having at least a portion of the business community supporting it and saying this is good for business. It's also looking at what customer demands, right? So our residents and people are turning on their lights from their cell phones now. They're generating power at home. Um, they're more interested in governments being more transparent. So I think all of those things were kind of stacking up. And then we also just ran the numbers and we ran them again and we we triple checked them because we were being ultra conservative. And it shows that we can save ratepayers money and the excess revenue that we generate on top of that can be invested now back into the communities. And we have a say over what that looks like. Um, Saving money just, you know, that was kind of the the cherry on top of um, how to do that. And you see municipal utilities that run both the T&D system and the procurement consistently in California cheaper than the investor-owned utilities. So there's there's something to be said for putting money back in the economy locally. And, and on that point, do you guys experience any tension with like the Public Utilities Commission? Because one of the things that I, you know, I, I think is really helpful to, to municipal utilities is they make decisions and then those decisions have been made. Um, whereas for an investor-owned utility, um, and I'm guessing even in your scenario where you're using the poles and wires of an investor-owned utility, even though you're responsible for procurement, are there things in your goal, uh, the 100% clean, um, that are going to become more difficult to achieve because of what can and cannot get through the PUC, or has that not been a problem? So one of the other benefits of community choice is that you now take away some of that decision-making from the PUC and bring it at the local level. So they now don't get involved in rate setting for the for the procurement side of energy. Um, so you, you get out of some of that mix because the, the Public Utilities Commission in California is... Again, I don't know if anybody has participated in that, but you it's like functioning in a court of law and it's confusing and it feels intentional and um, it's really hard. It's not like going to a city council meeting, which also isn't the easiest thing to go and engage in. Um, so I think we get to take some of the decisions out of the PUC in California, which will be nice. So we talked about how the, the fact that Mayor Faulkner is a Republican, um, but San Diego has an election coming up and a Democrat could win that. Presumably they would still be bold on climate. But I'm curious if the Republican title has actually helped get more done. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it has helped. I mean, he, he definitely has not impeded anything I've wanted to do around climate change or, or clean energy. Um, and I think it's really forced us to sharpen our messaging and really think about how we approach things and have more of a business approach to climate change. And, you know, that even if you are left-leaning or a Democrat, that still speaks to the, that party. So it's it's only forced us to get better and, and be more efficient at our, at our um, policies. Has the mayor faced any pushback? I'm curious. You said you did a lot of work to get businesses on board, but was anyone, and is anyone still really up in arms about this? Yeah, of course. I, I think, you know, we talk a little bit about the markets changing and we think as a city government, and I, I think a lot do about what does the future of our city look like? And we have, you know, the the innovation that's coming out of universities, the people that we want to retain and stay here. You know, that's a that's a new kind of generation, a new look of a city. And then we have this kind of old guard that's been around a long time. They've and this, I feel like repeats itself in a lot of cities and, and governments and they were used to kind of making decisions with their buddies and it's, you know, it's kind of like we're the smartest guys in the room. Have you seen that that movie, by the way? It's really great. It's about energy. Um, and um, and I think it's struggling to kind of let go of you made decisions without us and you're, you know, you're kind of embracing this future that we didn't agree to. And I think there's a little bit of that tension happening. So and then there's always I mean, I look for I work for local government. There's always people that are like you can't even fill a pothole. What makes you think you could run an energy company? Cody, I'm um, curious about that. Um, we're at a university <laughs> right now with a lot of young people in the room. Like what advice do you have for them to participate in this and become the next Cody who's making having all this impact? Uh, vote really is number one and by and far vote. I don't care how you vote, just engage, engage locally, engage nationally. In this scenario, vote Republican, right? Without the good old Mayor Faulkner, none of this would be possible. So I think that's really good advice. What about career advice for people trying to get into Choose this? carefully. Trying to get into, you know, into energy and environment, what would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to engage. There's so many career paths from, you know, how to market and communicate this stuff to uh, energy analytics and um, and technology. There's there's a world of technology in this space to politics and negotiation. I tell people that I, I meet a lot, like, take 
learn how to negotiate. That is all I do. I, I negotiate all day long and I, that's a skill that they don't teach you. Nobody teaches you. You just either figure it out or you know it, or you're good at it or you don't. And you negotiate, you get things done. Um, and so it, it's across the board. Business is a great avenue to go. Um, that's the language that you speak all the time in this world. If you want to be successful, it's not, hey, let's go hug some trees. It's, hey, let's go make some money. So there's a variety of pathways. Just find the one that suits your your personality and your skills and where you're, you know, you're interested in and go because it needs, it needs all of those spaces. Yeah. And cities are a great place to do that, given that they are so close to the people, as you said, a lot of where the rubber hits the road, which is kind of fun for our purposes because we spend so much time talking about the federal level, which is kind of posturing, you know, the vote we talked about earlier, but like the cities are where this is happening. Um, I wanted to push back on uh, another point or bring it up for discussion at least. I think around this time last year, uh, the city's climate action report came out and found only minimal progress on the city's goals. And feel free to correct me here. But um, where does the where does San Diego stand today in reducing its emissions efforts? Because goals are one thing, getting there is another. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, as of now, we're at about 21% reduction from our 2010 baseline. So every city picks a baseline to measure from, and we're at about a 21% reduction. And that's we saw a big jump between drop between 2010 and 20, I think that was a 2017 number, but then it's kind of plateaued a little bit because one, we cleaned up the grid quite a bit in that time frame, um, and that's kudos to our utility. Um, we've gone from, I don't know, 7 or 8% renewable to 45% renewable in that time frame. Um, that helped a lot, and there's other actions that have, people have been taking. We see, for example, in, in San Diego, um, residents have reduced their energy use, I think, 18% voluntarily. We didn't put any mandates or ordinances yet. <laughs> and that just happened voluntarily because costs are high, the recession happened, and people were looking for ways to save money, and technology came out that allowed them to do that. So I, I think I know exactly which reporter you're referring to who writes those articles. Um, and uh, got a hard-hitting journalist over uh, here, Cody. Uh-huh. Um, is and, it wrong, though, to say to frame it that way, would you Would you say? Uh, we, I mean, I would say a 21% reduction is actually, it is progress. Yeah. Um, but it's gonna. It doesn't mean that we are done. It doesn't mean that we can rest on our laurels. We have a lot of work to do, and it's gonna get harder. Um, so yeah. I, I wouldn't argue with that either. Are you guys looking at gas? One thing we've seen cities do is step up on, you know, putting in regulations that would prevent the addition of gas hookups for for new homes, and I think even phasing them out of existing ones. Is that what Berkeley did, or at least new it's new, new homes? San it's Jose, new homes. San Jose passed it too. San Jose passed it. Right. So is San Diego looking at uh, blocking new homes from having gas? Yeah, we are updating our climate action plan now. So again, we adopted it in 2015 and already so much has changed and we've learned a lot. Um, So we're just now starting on a a year and a half process to update that and refresh some of our goals. And I'd like that to be one of them. It, It also... San Diego, we have an affordable housing issue here. Um, I think we're one of the most affordable places, uh, excuse me, expensive places to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Scratch what? that. Rewind. Do not all move here. <laughs> doesn't Mitt Romney live here? With like, right. Doesn't he have like an right. elevator for all of his cars? Yes, he does. Um, and, um, Pierre Delecto? Yeah. Um, it's very expensive to live here. And one way to save on new homes is to not put two hookups, but just put one. That actually saves several almost $10,000 per home when you only have one utility connected or one electric utility. So, uh, and I don't want to put you in a, in a position to answer a question you don't want to answer, but with uh, SDG&E, like many utilities, they do both. And so I, I'm guessing internally in these companies, it can be a little bit confusing because it's not like SoCal Edison and SoCal Gas where your loss is my gain. Uh, how's that? Have you guys had any discussions with them and how do they view the world in so far as, you know, potentially... And I know you didn't say you're going there, but potentially having some sort of building code where you'd only have one hookup. Right. Um, we haven't gotten farther than just making these ideas internally yet. So I imagine they're not going to like it. And if they listen to this, I better reach out and call them and mm-hmm. have that discussion. Um, but, um, you know, it's again, it's the kind of the way the world is going and we're just trying to keep up or, or stay ahead of the curve. So um, I imagine that that's that's not going to be a, an ideal scenario for them. So another thing I wanted to touch on was the C40 meeting that happened earlier this month. It's an organization, C40 uh, of cities. And actually, our mayor in Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, was just announced as the new chair-elect of C40 cities. And he, along with the current chair, Mayor Hidalgo of Paris, announced support for a global green new deal to, quote, drive an urgent, fundamental and irreversible transfer of global resources away from fossil fuels and into action that averts the climate emergency. 
uh, something like 80 mayors were at this meeting, 94 cities recognized this global climate emergency. So I'm curious what you make of this Green New Deal framing. That's, you know, at the federal level, we talk about it as also going beyond just energy into thinking about jobs and, uh, you know, combating some of the inequities in society. Exactly. So is that a a framework you guys have adopted here? Yeah, we actually have already included uh, language around that in our original climate action plan and something I'm I'm particularly passionate about. And I think it's really helped us move the needle as we think about um, climate justice and environmental justice a lot. And we have an equity component of our climate action plan and think about how um, our communities that we have historically underserved the most, how we can with this kind of rethinking of our economy, how we can bring those folks along and actually have them at the table as we're making all these new decisions and not saying, oh, we we think we know what they want. Let's just add some things, but actually having them sit at the table. And I actually have staff working on that. Um, and it's very, you know, there's a handful of cities in the country thinking about that. So to your bigger question about the Green New Deal and C40s and all the other things to You're sign on You're not killing to. cows and like not Ending hamburgers? Yeah. No, no, no. We're not, we're not banning that yet, I guess. Um, you realize that to make hamburgers, you do kill cows. Right, <laughs> so yeah. I think you meant the opposite yeah, of that. Banning, You're yeah, not not right, killing yeah, cows. Right. Banning air travel. Cows do not appear should. in our climate yeah. action plan. Let's just say that. <laughs> Let the record show. That'll be the headline of this whole discussion, I'm sure. Right. Um, so, so we yeah. do align with all of C40 and all of those other, the Green New Deal. Everyone I've seen come out with, there's one being discussed at the local level. And we, we already align with all of those. Um, so... You know, we, we support all of them and, and it's nothing new to us here. So we do or don't sign on to them. At some point I, I did get sign on fatigue. Um, but um, but it's I feel like sometimes it's it's also just, you know, a shiny thing for the media. And really, we're just trying to get some work done. I guess, you know, we started this discussion with the idea that cities are effective players in this. They have a lot of power. So much of the population lives there. But then I wonder how much cities can really do, given that they are nested within a state and then they have a federal government. And there was an op-ed, I think, in the Wall Street Journal last year that caused a stir around this. Like 100% goals for cities are kind of smoke and mirrors. They're only limited by what they can do in their state. So how effective can cities really be? Are they limited in any way? We're not going to solve global climate change at the local level. I mean, you know, we only contribute a certain percentage of emissions, but we we do set trends. Um, and we do also, another way that I often frame the work that we do in climate change is thinking about quality of life. So even if we aren't solving climate change with the actions that we're taking, we are cleaning our, our own air, we're creating more jobs, um, we're saving people money, we're building bike lanes to allow people to get around other than driving, we're, you know, putting... Uh, renewable energy on people's rooftops that lets them, you know, be more resilient to changes and and that might come. So even if you take away the climate change thing and we aren't solving that, we're still, it's a quality of life issue that we're bringing a lot of benefits to people. I have one last question. Um, When you and the mayor are talking to national Republicans uh, and telling them about what you're doing here in San Diego, what sort of feedback do you get in those conversations? It, you know, he might have. That's a telling smile. It's like, no, I'm, I'm more excited than I was two seconds ago. Um, he might get different feedback than uh, when, when he's with me. Um, but I think the general feedback is that, you know, it's kind of the green is green thing, right? Like if, if you're making money and this is working, okay, I, I get it. But we still get some of those questions around, um, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're going a little too far or it's not really, you know, not really necessary or that kind of, that kind of mentality. But I think most people now, especially people that are running cities, even if they're Republican, get the value for their constituents. People seem to still want to live here. So, so far it hasn't hurt you. (laughs) All right. With that, we'll conclude this city's portion of the episode and turn to our final segment, Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican, and hopefully also our guest, if she's got something, will say something redeeming about the opposing political party or about bipartisanship. Shane, let's go to you first. Okay, so mine is a little bit sad, but um, Elijah Cummings, who passed uh, recently, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we were uh, aligned. He's a, a congressman from Maryland and, and has been active on several issues, you know, from civil rights to, to many other things over the past several decades. Um, I wouldn't say that we're well aligned politically, but I know when I worked in the House, everybody respected him. He was one of those individuals who could hit really hard if he had to because it was the right thing to do, but built really strong friendships. Um, and, you know, was a serious lawmaker. Uh, you know, he was known to say that every time he goes home to the district, 
he gets excited to go back to Washington because he knows who he's fighting for and what he's trying to do. And I always admired and respected him. So just wanted to say something nice about him and also point out that I think all of us would be in a lot better place if we had more people like him, whether Republican or Democrat, who genuinely wanted to serve their constituents and and, um, wanted to be respectful to his political opponents as well. So we'll miss him. Brandon, what do you got? That was very nice, Shane. Thank you. Um, I mean, this sounds sort of parochial because Cody's sitting right here, but I wanted to say something nice about uh, Mayor Faulkner and what he's uh, done here in San Diego. It's very impressive, you know, setting these ambitious goals on 2035, being ahead of the state. I also read about what he's been doing on homelessness uh, and taking a leadership position on that, which is a, you know, uh, crisis uh, in many cities in in California. Um, And so if the Republicans ever break this fever, um, maybe they will turn to mayors like Mayor Faulkner and uh, rebuild with uh, his sort of model in mind. I don't remember the last time you did like 100% something nice. Like there's always like a, a last 20% at the oh, end. Oh, come there. on. All of your backhanded. <laughs> I mean, I could have like ripped on pure delecto. I mean, that was pretty juicy and I, I didn't do that. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Cody, can you chime in here? Do anything that you could add? Sure. Um, I like this. I used to make, um, in grad school, I, I taught high school kids, um, and I made them all say something nice when they were being jerks. So I like it. Yes. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> usually it was three things, though. Um, I guess I will kind of continue on the local level and Mayor Faulkner. We did just pass a pretty big um, climate initiative with Community Choice, um, and it was um, nearly unanimous. It was a 7-2 vote, but led by him bringing it forward. And so that made it re- very bipartisan. And I guess I would say that I, I like that my local electeds are demonstrating how to kind of put on your big girl panties and work together to get stuff done. And, and I wish that the federal level would uh, take notice of that, I guess. Fantastic. I remember covering Mayor Faulkner making that announcement last year, actually at an event where Arnold Schwarzenegger, our you know supporter of this show, was attending, and he made the announcement there. And then here we are a year later, and it's now official. The city has adopted it. So things are moving. Well, with that, that is the end of our show. Thanks to everyone in the room for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, make sure to look up Political Climate on any podcasting app, Apple, Spotify, whatever, wherever you like to listen. Uh, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Uh, thanks to Victoria Simon, our producer. She's over here. She puts together notes for us, transports us down here. She does all this great stuff to make this show possible. So that is it for this time. Uh, thank you and listen again soon. 